Um, hey, lovely to meet you. My name's Katie. Richard Hodgson has said he will keep me accountable that I will not say morning in the middle of this preach, and he will say ka every time I do, and I'll donate to charity. So let's see how that goes. You can pick the charity, Richard. Uh, a quid a time, though, yeah, because I'm not confident I'll get through the whole thing um, without it. Um, yeah, my name's Katie and I'm the youth and student worker. I'm usually the one, if you don't know me, that like is walking out with like 30 kids behind me on a Sunday, just like, off we go. Um, it's my great privilege to do that and I, I love our young people. They are absolutely incredible. So um, we're in the middle of a series on the Sermon on the Mount and John a couple of weeks ago set the overview for that landing on the picture that Jesus leaves us with, with are we being wise and building on the rock? Or are we being foolish and building on sand? And so we've broken down this series into three questions. And that is, how is our heart? What's driving us? And who are we choosing? And Andy kicked off last week talking about the Beatitudes with looking at how our heart is, suggesting that actually the Beatitudes is where our humanity meets the divinity of Jesus. That that's where the law is fulfilled in Jesus, not in us, not in the things that we do or the, the checklist that we might be keeping to, but it's when we find ourselves in him and our story in his. And so I'm going to be continuing, and after that chunk of the Bible, it goes into six illustrations of what that means. So what does a wise life look like? What does that mean for the laws and how Jesus goes beyond the law to the heart of the matter? So why is the heart important. I feel like it could be summed up in Proverbs 4.23, which says, above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. Right? Whatever my heart is set on is going to determine my thoughts, my speech, and my actions. So is it any wonder that Jesus is concerned with the matter of my heart, with the state that it's in? And like Ralph brilliantly brought this morning, I might take a moment to reflect on where my morning ka this afternoon, <laughs> I might see that actually my heart, like it feels pretty weighty. Just take a second. Notice where you find yourself. How is your heart? The three examples I'm going to look at that Jesus talks about are helpfully titled in the NIV, which is the version I'm going to be using, teaching about anger, teaching about retaliation, and teaching about love for enemies. Brace yourselves. But I'm excited because I believe that what Jesus shows... An angel, aren't you, Katie? Yeah, I am an angel. And I, I used to think that when my dad would follow that up and he would say, life and death is in the power of t- the tongue, I thought it was a saying, it's in Proverbs, it's biblical, like it is actually biblical and it's important. And I, I think there's a reason that Jesus gives us two examples in the section on teaching and anger about calling someone names. Eugene Peterson says this in the message translation just after that. He says, the simple moral fact is that words kill. I might not be violent in my actions, but I can absolutely be violent in my words. And so as we go through these teachings, these are the two comparisons I'm wanting to make. What does my life look like when I am being led by my emotions, by anger? And what does my life look like when I'm being led by righteousness? 
And so when I'm angry and I'm using words like raka, I mean, in the Aramaic, raka means worthless, empty one, empty headed. Some people have translated it to mean the noise that you make when you gather spit at the back of your throat ready to spit at a person. Like that's pretty worthless, right? And so if I'm being led by anger, then actually I find myself devaluing the person in front of me. So is it any wonder that Jesus is saying it's not enough just not to murder a person? Well done, if you've all got here today without murdering someone. It's not enough. Right? There is a more righteous way to live. There is a better way, a more blessed way for us to live. The next chunk of the teaching on anger, it says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. And with all of these bits of teaching, I don't believe that they're asterisks to the law. It's not like do not murder, see footnotes. And it's like an extra explanation of what that really means. I think what Jesus is getting at here is that my anger is always going to lead me to divide and isolate if I'm being led by it. I'm going to get to later, I think being angry is human, and I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, it's not okay to do. But it's when I follow and I'm being led by it that I can find myself devaluing others and dividing and isolating. And I find this bit really challenging because there are probably plenty of people that I could be reconciled to right now. I really thought about it. I don't know about you. And really, if I was following this really strictly, I would just put down the microphone now and go and find them. But that is literally what it says. But I believe what Jesus is showing us is that righteousness is going to lead me to seek unity, and that might not look like me, you know, making everything right in that moment, but it is going to look like me coming to an agreement with the person that maybe I've caused some harm to and saying, I want to listen and I want to hear and I want to agree that something hard has happened. And so I don't think reconciliation is the same as restoration or the same as rebuilding. I think reconciliation can be two separate people coming together to say, this has happened, this is hard, what do we do now? I don't know. Maybe we need space. Maybe I just need to not hear from you. Maybe actually this is the end of a close friendship. Like I still think that's reconciliation. If my heart is set on unity, if my heart is seeking after Jesus. Now I'm not going to be able to control the outcome of that. And I don't think we should look to control whether the other person like, well, I've come here with the united heart and you don't want to reconcile. Like, that's not what Jesus is saying. (laughs) I'm pretty certain. We need to relinquish that to God, surrender it to him, trusting that he sees our heart. And that's the most important thing. And that the door is open to peace and open to unity. So hopefully we have a helpful table soon. Look at this. We've, so far we've learned, my anger leads me to devalue others. Righteousness leads me to recognize everyone's eternal value. My anger leads me to divide and isolate, and righteousness leads me to seek unity. And the third part of the teaching on anger says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. 
Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, last year was my first year of marriage to Andy Davis. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It is almost our two-year anniversary. Happy anniversary. Shout out from the front. That's your present. Um... (laughs) And like anyone in this room who has had to learn to live with another person, we had the conversation that will always come up, which is about the heating. I am a very cold person, and people that know me know that I sit in the office with a hot water bottle clutched to me at all times, like even in the height of summer. And uh, it got to a point where we'd had the summer, Andy hadn't had work for some time, so we'd had to come up with a budget, and autumn had rolled around, and I started to get cold again, you know, get a bit of a chill. So I just whack the heating on, constant. You know, that good, efficient thing to do. I've never had to pay for heating before that, so I thought it was fine. Until Andy sat me down, and he said, Katie, the bills have tripled. You need to stop knocking the heating on constant, okay? And I was a really good wife. I was like, I'm listening and I hear you. And I I hear that this is important to you. And so I will try to do it. And he's like, you don't need to try, just don't do it. (laughs) Okay. And so um, I had taken this on board, but one Friday I had got a bit cold and I think I was trying to dry clothes in a two-bed terrace with no dryer. Some people understand. You've got to put the, the heating on to do it. And I knocked it on constant. And then we went away for the weekend. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so I'd forgotten all about it. I'd had a great time. I'm coming back. Like Andy's like getting all the stuff out of the car. I open the door to what can only be described as a Swedish sauna. (laughs) I'm like, oh, no, I know exactly what I've done. I have 30 seconds before Andy is going to get to the house, realize what I've done, and then have to come up with a story. So like, I run to the boiler, I switch it onto timer, and honestly, my thought is like, I'll just tell him it was the timer. (laughs) I'll just just tell him that that's what it was. And uh, sure enough, Andy walks in the door, I I turn, we sort of lock eyes, like panicked, like, are you going to say anything about the fact that it's hot in here? And I had a choice. I had a choice. My choice was, do I confess and be like, I'm really sorry? Or do I actually say, that timer, oh gosh, just, which is lying, isn't it, everyone? It's just lying. I did choose to confess, but it was basically like, I'm so sorry and I'll never do it again. And I wasn't really afraid of what Andy was going to do. He's a really kind and patient person. And he was more just like disappointed, which is worse, really. Um, (laughs) But what I noticed in myself was that actually my shame had led me to be really proud. I didn't want to admit that I'd made a mistake. I didn't want to admit quickly and just nip it in the bud. Like I was genuinely contemplating, do I spin out a lie that could actually be super damaging between the two of us because he knows I'm lying? And so had I followed shame here down this path, it would have found me proud, not wanting to admit my mistakes. But righteousness and what I believe Jesus is showing us here to settle matters quickly and kindly and lovingly, even when we've made mistakes... Actually, Jesus teaches me to walk humbly. He's not asking any of us to be perfect this afternoon. Thank you. We're going to jump a bit ahead now to um, 
the teaching on retaliation, or it might say revenge in your translations, but follow me to Matthew 5, uh, we're going to go to verse 38. You have heard it, that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I think what Jesus is saying here is it was absolutely fine for me to take my sister's clothes. Ellie and Sean, if you're watching at home. No. This is a law that's quoted from Leviticus, uh, and it's the same one that says that someone who commits murder can be put to death. It's a law of equalization that says, what you take from me, I can take from you. No more, no less, but I can take it exactly. And now, I think it's important to clarify that Jesus isn't speaking here to the judicial system to write consequence, like natural consequence, to poor choices and to what the punishments might be for certain crimes. He's talking to you and I, to the crowd. And so, when I am led by anger, I seek revenge. I'm looking to exact the same level of pain, if not more, upon someone who has interfered with my life and caused me pain. But when I follow Jesus, when I seek righteousness, I find mercy. I give mercy because I've received mercy. I've received mercy from Jesus Christ who was beaten and mocked and crucified and didn't once think about exacting the same level of pain on a single human that caused that. Like what a privilege to receive mercy. And so shouldn't it again be my privilege to give you what you don't deserve? Because it is my privilege to receive it. So when I'm led by anger, I seek revenge. And when I'm led by righteousness, I give mercy because I've received mercy. This last um, chunk of teaching is titled teaching on love for enemies. And before I read it, I couldn't think of a more relevant thing to talk about in today's world. Between cancel culture and political division and all of the different opinions around COVID and vaccines and the way that the government should be doing things, gosh, after so long of isolation, I have found myself only surrounding myself with the people who think the same as me. And honestly, occasionally laughing at the people who don't. So you might not find yourself with enemies this afternoon, but I bet there are people that ultimately I think a little less of because of the opinions that they hold. This is what it says, Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, 
as your heavenly father is perfect. There's a quote from an American senator called Ben Sass that really spoke to me about this. And he says this. It is also on my notes, but I just wanted the dramatic moment of like, he says, <laughs> and here he is today, Ben Sass. <laughs> he says, our isolation has deprived us of healthy local tribes with whom we share values and goals and ways of life that uplift us. And so we fall into anti-tribes, defined by what we're against rather than what we're for. It's a sorry substitute, but at least it's better than nothing. I wonder if you found yourself in a room recently trying to build connection based on all being angry about the same thing. Yeah, I'm really livid about that too. I'm trying to get equity with you. I'm trying to make sure you think that you know that I'm also in the same space that you're in. Please just connect with me, see me, and let me use my anger to do it. Let me use my disdain, let me use my contempt to do it. And what about the anger that we have at injustice? What about the anger I find in myself when I think about the racial prejudices in the justice system? About the disproportionate amount of gender-based violence? About the extreme poverty happening here in the UK? About the unfair asylum seeker process? Absolutely, I'm angry about that, but I really want to challenge us. If I'm satisfied with just talking about that anger, is it righteous? If it feels like it's enough for me to just say it and win some points with some friends in a room, is it really righteous anger? Or is it righteous when it propels me into action so that I actually live my life differently? Because I have a deep sense of value for the people around me, because I see their honour and want to honour them, because I want to give them mercy, no matter what they've done or where they've found themselves or how they've got themselves here. And isn't that what moved Jesus in the temple? If that's the example that we give of Jesus flipping tables and that's righteous anger, so it's fine for me to get angry about stuff in a room, was it not deep love for God and for people that moved Jesus to do that? Not shared hatred or shared anger. And so my anger leads me to find factions and to separate. But righteousness leads me to honour all. And honour means to recognise the value of another person and give it to them. That's what I do when I honour a person. And this, I think, is a picture of a life of building on rock on following Jesus and I'm seeking righteousness. My life is going to look like one that recognizes everyone's eternal value, that seeks unity, that walks humbly, that gives mercy, and that honors all. But I don't want this to feel like a to-do list because then we would just be swapping out those commandments that Jesus is saying, I want to go beyond that. It's to say, that's what I'm seeking after. 
That's what I'm setting my heart on. And every single day I'm coming back to Jesus to be like, I want to set my heart on your righteousness again. I want to set my heart to seek you again. I want to be found in you, Jesus. Yesterday was a bit of a mess up. Because I know I'm going to receive from him mercy. I know he's going to give back to me that value and that love. I know that he's going to honor me in the humility I have to say, yeah, I messed up. I confess, I repent, and I come to you again. So what does this mean for our emotions, hey? I I sort of mentioned it at the beginning and then dropped it halfway through. Do we just like repress everything? It worked 90 years ago, didn't it? People got by. Just don't feel your feelings. I don't think it did. That was very flippant, and I apologize to anyone I've offended with that comment. (laughs) Jesus felt really deeply. There's this beautiful um, piece of writing that's a combination of the lovely Sarah Hellwood and Emma Hodges teaching on the freedom course about what Jesus felt. And, And it says this, Jesus felt compassion. He was angry, indignant, and consumed with zeal. He was troubled, greatly distressed, very sorrowful, depressed, deeply moved, and grieved. He sighed, He wept and sobbed. He groaned and he was in agony. He was surprised and amazed. He rejoiced very greatly and was full of joy. He greatly desired and he loved. Hope you're okay. The path of righteousness is not one that is free of feeling. And it isn't Jesus's plan for you to not feel stuff. But Jesus is the perfect picture of being fully man and fully God and of fully feeling and fully being holy and set apart and righteous. And so isn't he the picture that we should be following after? It's not a get out of jail free card for you to self-indulge as much as you like. But it's an encouragement to treat emotions as we should, which is information. My emotions are there to tell me something about myself and so that I can take that information back to God and say, why? Why is this flagging up in me? Why is this person rubbing up against me? What is it in me? What are you showing me? That's what my emotions are made to do, not just to react up against another person, to be led by or for me to follow them. And so our heart matters. How our heart is doing matters because everything else, like it says in Proverbs, will flow from that. And how do I set my heart to seek Jesus? How do I do that? That would be helpful for me to give you some tips, but I'm not going to because I think you'll just end up trying to follow them and that's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) You can be found in Jesus by reading his word by sitting with him in prayer and meditation and by talking about him with your friends. Like really straightforward. And it doesn't need to be perfect. But he's inviting you to step into that again this afternoon. And so I want to invite the band back up um, because I've got a couple of people that just in writing this that I'd really like to pray for. It's really, really easy, and I find myself regularly being driven by my emotions. Before I've got to the middle of the day, I barely remember the decisions that I've made because I've just been propelled forward by what I'm feeling. And that's a really frustrating place to be. 
And it's really easy to get stuck in that cycle. And so I'd love to invite you, if you feel like actually your feelings are having a bit of a parade in your life and you can't stop the train, I'd love to invite you to get some prayer. Because I believe that Jesus wants to come in and process these emotions with you, speak to you about it, and bring healing to the places that need healing. And so if that is you, it's awkward because the music's not here, and so people will hear you walking down the steps, so I just want to acknowledge that. I'd love you to come to the front and to step into that, and then I'd love to ask people from church to pray for you. The second group of people are people who just feel like they can't get it right. Like this is just one too many. Like this is just another thing. And if they don't do it, then life's just going to fall apart. If perfectionism is something that you're really fighting against, I'd love to pray for you this morning. This afternoon. Thank you, Jesus. I love you. So if that is you, please be brave. Come to the front. Thank you. And if you begin to see people walking up, if you're able to, um, please come and lay a hand on them, maybe check with them first. And I'm just going to pray. Holy Spirit, would you be the one that reveals the substance of our hearts? Would you be the one that we're listening to and seeking after? Yeah, Holy Spirit, come. Thank you, Jesus.